piece called um, Meet Jesus. And it is a study of the Gospel of John. And interestingly, the, the theme uh, that we've been in recently has been the topic of death. Um, and we just got off this <coughs> incredible story where Lazarus um, was dead for four days and was raised to life by Jesus. So we, we come now to the aftermath of that miracle. And I'm, I'm going to pray for our, uh, the, the message. And actually, before I pray, just one uh, note. I heard the chime going. Does, does someone know how to dis... Okay, good. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> didn't want that. Um, and also, apologies. I'm probably going to cough because I'm getting over a cold and I'm short on sleep. And so just um, bear with me a little bit. Lord, uh, I lift up um, this time to you and, and ask, Lord, that you would bless your word. Lord, that you would um, cause it to be effective in our hearts. Lord Jesus, that, um, that you would meet us and we would meet you. Uh, that we would learn more about you. That we would grow in faith and belief and trust in you. Lord, may you enrich us, enrich our lives uh, with, uh, with the sweetness and nourishment of your word and with the power of your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Stephanie and I often will go through this routine uh, where we share uh, about our days, and uh, especially if I'm like gone at work and I come home, and, and so we'll each like take turns sharing about our day. And oftentimes it's it's sort of you know routine. It's kind of mundane. It's kind of status quo. You know, I got up in the morning. I went to the gym. I went to the church, I had some meetings, like I did, did the things, and I came back, you know, it's kind of like that, and then we talk about, you know, what's your highlight and what's your low light, and I thought it would be interesting, like, what, what would that look like if I, was, if I was there in Jesus' day when Lazarus was raised from the dead, what would that, what would that story, what would telling my day look like, and I was thinking, you know, I, Stephanie would ask me, how was your day? Well, you know, I woke up, and went for a run, it was, it was nice, and I went to the market and got some breakfast and did a little bit of work and then uh, had a service to attend over in Bethany, so I walked over a couple miles down to Bethany, and service was great, um, music was good, um, food was good, it was nice, and this guy came and he seemed like he was a big to-do or something, and he said, roll away the stone, I was just like, oh, that's probably not smart, I mean... <laughs> going to smell, and, uh, and he had the audacity to tell this dead man to stop being dead. I thought that was kind of interesting. Then he asked people to unwrap him. I was like, ooh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to take off of the linens. That's, that's a little dirty. Then I got a little hungry and decided to go get some dinner, come home, and Stephanie asked me, well, what was the highlight of the day? Well, my jog was pretty good. I felt, I felt pretty nice. Service was good. Yeah, good music. Yeah. And the dead man getting up, I, I guess that was, that was interesting too. Now, now, is that how it would actually go? Like, if that, if that really happened, is that how I would tell my story? Probably not, right? 
I mean, the, the point, she asked, you know, we ask each other, what are highlights of the day? And, and sometimes, you know, it's, it's a struggle to pick out the thing. Sometimes there really is no highlight, right? It's just kind of like life is normal, status quo. But what happens here is something that is remarkable, something that wouldn't have just been the highlight of my day, like it would have been the highlight of everyone's day, it would have been the highlight of everyone's lifetimes. And the point of what Jesus is doing is saying, I'm someone different. I'm invading your status quo lives. I'm disrupting it. And you can't ignore me. The title of the message this morning is Jesus Disrupts the Status Quo. Jesus Disrupts the Status Quo. And there's three different components that Jesus disrupts. The first is that Jesus disrupts death. The second is that Jesus disrupts salvation. And the third is Jesus disrupts money. Jesus disrupts death, salvation, and money. Now, the first one we'll look at, Jesus disrupts death. Uh, If you are, if you do have a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 11. We'll start in verse, <coughs> verse 44. Oh, I'm in numbers. That won't work, will it? <laughs> this doesn't look right. Uh, verse 44. The dead man came out bound, hat, hand and foot, with linen strips, and with his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, said to them unwrap him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Jesus disrupts death. And the status quo that he disrupts is this. Dead people stay dead. That's the status quo. That's the the existing state of affairs that we operate on. Dead people stay dead. Jesus disrupts that. Now, the reason why death is so sad is because dead people stay dead. Right? We don't expect, like when we're at that funeral, that the, that the dead person we loved is going to get up out of the casket. We don't expect that their ashes are going to come back together and become a person because dead people stay dead. And, and even though we might comfort ourselves with the fact that one day we will see our loved one again, it doesn't take away from some very real and present pain and suffering that we uh, experience in our loss. And that's right, and that's normal, and that's good. And Jesus himself entered into that morning. We looked at last week, the shortest English verse of the Bible is Jesus wept. Jesus wept. He experienced the pain and suffering of death, the reality of losing someone. We expect dead people to stay dead. And so what makes it uh, all the more shocking what Jesus does He does something that completely disrupts what we all have come to believe and understand about dead people. They don't get back up. And so Jesus raises Lazarus. Jesus doesn't just say, 
that one day he will raise again. Jesus doesn't just say that one day we will all rise again, and that's true. But what Jesus does is he gives us a demo. He gives us a demo of his resurrection power. Now, when I was in the software development industry, I wasn't a software uh, developer, but I worked with software developers. And you can say all you want how great your software is going to be, how great your features are going to be, and that has some weight, but it's not real until you can actually demo it. And so in, in every project I worked on, you're working on this software, like the big day was one of the big days, the biggest day is launch, but before that, the big day is demo day. And this is where the features become real. This is where you show what you said the software could do. And this is basically what, basically what Jesus is doing. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who dies, even though he dies, he will live. And, and Mary responds, I believe that, or Martha does. And Jesus says, now I'm going to show you. I'm going to give you a demo of my resurrection power. I'm going to give you a foretaste, a a preview of what I will do in eternity for all of us. Jesus gives us the demo of his resurrection power. And it's clear (coughs) Jesus is not more of the same. Like what we learn about Jesus, he's not, he's not status quo. He's not boring. He's not ho-hum. He's not just another good teacher. He's inserted himself into our world and has demonstrated through many signs throughout the Gospel of John, from turning water into wine, from healing the paralyzed man at the Pool of Siloam, to healing the man who was born blind, and now healing or now bringing Lazarus back to life after being dead four days. And that's to underscore just how dead he was. Jesus is someone different. Jesus is not more the same. And I think in our world, oftentimes we lift up political heroes and, and, and future people that we think are going are gonna to do something. They're going to make some change. They make big and bold promises They promise to undo the status quo, but more often than not, we get more of the same, more partisanship, more infighting, more inability to get things done. And Jesus says, I'm not that kind of savior. Jesus manifest power compels people to respond. And at this point, There's probably not many people who haven't heard about Jesus. Like Jesus has done so many miraculous things that there was a wide knowledge of who Jesus was. And you couldn't ignore him. And he's almost had to take a side one way or another. This is what Jesus wanted. We see in, in verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed in him. Some people believed. Now, I want (coughs) to, excuse me, I want to note something here about the term the Jews. So verse 45, therefore, many of the Jews 
who came to Mary and saw what he did, believed in him. So I'm going to do just a little bit of background and teaching here. Um, some people have taken the Gospel of John to be anti-Semitic. And they do that because you see the mention of the Jews all throughout the Gospel of John. And 80% of the time, it's a negative view of the Jews. Okay, And so some people say, well... It's anti-Semitic. It doesn't like, the book is not painting the Jews in a good light. But it's important to understand what we're talking about when it says the Jews. Is John talking about all ethnic Jews when he says the Jews? And the answer is no, he's not. In verse 54, if you jump with me, makes it pretty clear that he's not talking about all ethnic Jews. Verse 54, Jesus therefore no longer, sorry, it might not be up there. Oh, oh, wow, you're good. Thank you, Terry. (laughs) I didn't put it in this order, but she just jumped right to it. Nice. Jesus therefore walked openly, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but departed from there to the countryside near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and he stayed there with the disciples. Now, who are his disciples they're Jewish. What is, where is Ephraim? It's still Jewish. It, what he's saying, he's, he's moving away from the power base. He's moving away from the establishment. So when, when you see the Jews in this gospel, it's representing the establishment. It'd be like us saying the people in Washington, not, not Washington State, but Washington, D.C., the people in Washington, Wherever. You know I'm terrible at direction. All right. East, very far east. Um, right? You're, not ta- you're talking about the, not just politicians, but them included, but anyone who's connected. And so you see that the Jews are the power base. It's not just ethnic. It is, they are ethnic Jews, but he's not talking about all ethnic Jews. Does that make sense? Okay, you just got here, Ross, so you, you got to hear the beginning of it. And you can even tell in verse 46, it says, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. These were people who were connected, right? These were people who could just go, all right, look what we saw Jesus do. And that distinction is, is interesting because it says some of them believe So some of the power base, some of the establishment, after they see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, they're like, okay, (laughs) we can't kid ourselves any longer. There's something about Jesus, and and they believe in him. They trust in him. There's faith. But some of them don't. There's a contrast there. They go and they tattle on Jesus. They go to the religious authorities and say, hey, this guy, we know you don't like him. He's still up to stuff. And so, thank you. And so, it forces a response. Some believe and some don't. Jesus is a problem for some people. The, the, the takeaway from this is that we shouldn't ignore Jesus. We shouldn't ignore Jesus. 
and I'm, I'm speaking to Christians, it's very easy even for believers in the day-to-day mundane things of life, in the status quo of life to ignore Jesus. And Jesus is saying, don't ignore me. If we really believe that he did what he did, it's hard to ignore. Like when I started sharing like, you know, how was your day? And, and you see a man tell someone that he can't be dead anymore. That's someone you should pay attention to. That's someone that I want to learn from. That's someone that I want to know more about. That's someone that I think might know something about life. Maybe they even own life. And Jesus is saying, don't ignore me. And now some of us might say, and we might get this objection from those who don't believe. I didn't see Lazarus raised from the dead. Right? That's a long time ago. Like that, what, that demo wasn't for me. It's a recorded demo. Right? It, G, John is recording that demo in Scripture for us to believe. And, and it's a good demo. It's good evidence. Let me give you an illustration. Let's say there is an 80-year-old man today who writes a book on how JFK was raised from the dead after he was assassinated. Would that book be well-received? Would people accept that as truth? I hope you know the answer is no. It would not. He would be considered crazy or they would write his work off as fiction, as hypothetical. The reason why it wouldn't be accepted is because we're still close enough to JFK's assassination that there are still people alive today who went through it and could easily say, no, 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 that didn't happen. I didn't see him alive. He was dead. I saw him buried, and he never came out. It is easily verifiable. What's happened here is something very similar. JFK was what, 50, 60 years ago, right? John wrote this book 50 or 60 years after Lazarus was risen. And he's writing that many people saw this. Many people saw Lazarus die and they saw him raised. And if John wrote this book in the 80s AD, that's what most people agree, then it's highly unlikely that his book would have stood the test of time when there were people who very much would have wanted to squash that story. But they could not squash that story. Why? Because there must have been enough people who really believed that Lazarus really died and really rose. Otherwise, this story, we would not be reading it today. It's good evidence that this really happened. And even if you don't accept Jesus, you can't deny the fact that the most likely explanation for why we still have this story is that there must have been a good amount of people, including leaders, who believe that something really miraculous happened. 
And it's interesting, when you think about these things, you think of, some people think, John says, faith is believing in what you know ain't true. I, I know it's a quote from someone else who said that. Um, who is it? The famous author, um, Mark Twain. And, and, but it's just not, that, that, that idea of faith is not the reality. We have evidence. We have things that can be verified, things that make sense, things that are reasonable and rash, rational. And even though it is supernatural, the evidence is there. And Jesus is saying, and John is saying, this is for us that we might believe, that we might see Jesus for who he is, that we might not ignore the power that Jesus has to invade our lives and bring life where there looks like nothing but death. Jesus disrupts death. And if Jesus disrupts death, then we must look back when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who believes in me will never, or everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And this will be true of us. And this is true of the over 300 Christians who were killed in Sri Lanka earlier this year. And this is true of Randy Sheets. Though he has died in Christ, he will live. How do we know? Because Jesus has already given us the demo. He's already showed us. This is... This is the coolest feature that's in existence. I'm giving you a taste, and it will be revealed. It will be rolled out in due time, and we will all experience being raised from the dead with Jesus. Jesus disrupts death, but he doesn't only disrupt death. He also disrupts salvation. That's the second point. Jesus disrupts salvation. Let me explain what I mean. I'm going to read the passage first, verse 47 through 57. (coughs) So the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and were saying, what are we going to do since this man is doing many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. One of them, Caiaphas, Caiaphas was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. You're not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to unite the scattered children of God. So from that day on, they plotted to kill him. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but departed from there to the countryside near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And he stayed there with his disciples. 
Now the Jewish Passover was near, and many went up to Jerusalem from the country to purify themselves before the Passover. They were looking for Jesus and asking one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? He won't come to the festival, will he? The chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it so that they could arrest him. So the status quo is that salvation uh, comes, uh, is mainly political. That's the status quo. Salvation in our world is mainly political. That's the status quo. Now, how do we see that? So, so some Jews believed, and some of them went to go tell, right? Hey, guess what we saw? We saw Jesus raise this dead man from the grave, and he was <coughs> very dead. And, and they say, you might think, right? This, you might think that this would be cause for celebration, like, this should be cause for rejoicing. And it's, it's funny because some of the leaders went to the funeral. They were there to comfort. They were there to console. They were there to be there, you know, to, to be decent human beings. And they hear that Lazarus was risen from the grave. And they don't rejoice. They don't celebrate. They aren't glad in their heart about what God has done. What they see is a problem. What they see is a huge problem. And, and what is the problem that they see? What are they worried about? They say, what are we going to do since this man is doing many signs? Verse 47. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now, a little bit of context. Um, the, the, the people uh, of Israel had basically a semi-autonomous state. Okay? They were not completely sovereign. Rome was in charge, for sure. Caesar ruled. But as long as... The people of Israel paid their tributes and didn't rebel against Caesar. They were given a certain amount of freedom, a certain amount of religious freedom, the ability to worship God as they wanted, the ability to keep their temple and to follow their rituals and practices and to have uh, their own sort of self-government up to a degree. And they didn't want to lose that. And they were afraid that if Jesus gathered all the people to himself, what they were expecting was a Messiah who would be this king politically and would restore the complete sovereignty of Israel. As you can imagine, Rome wouldn't be happy with that. And, and Rome was the biggest army. They, they're the strongest, most dominant nation on the earth at the time. They had legions and legions of armies they could send in to squash it. And so they were afraid. The, the, the religious leaders were afraid that Jesus was going to stir up this big revolt. And they were going to lose everything they had. So they're fearful. And so then, 
Caiaphas, the high priest, has a solution. His solution is political. It's pretty clear. He's saying, but he does it in such a way that he's prophesying with God's words, but he has completely different motives than what God has. So he says, you guys don't know what you're talking about, number one. He's kind of rude. And then he says, don't you know that it's better that one person should die for the people and save the, and that the whole nation would perish? So he's basically saying Jesus should die for the nation of Israel, which is exactly the plan that God had in mind. That's, and that's what Jesus was coming to do. But Caiaphas is articulating it from a different perspective, merely from a political perspective. He's thinking that salvation in, in, in the face of Rome looks like killing this guy who would stir up all this revolt. If we kill him, he won't stir up the revolt, and we'll still have, our, we'll still have the status quo. Even though, even though the status quo is not really what they would want, like ultimately they would want something better, but they're so afraid of messing up what they have. And, and note this, it's actually something that's very selfish. And you see this, you think, oh, well, they're really concerned about the nation, and I'm sure they are concerned about the nation. But the, the words that Caiaphas uses in verse 15 makes it clear that, that they're really fundamentally concerned about themselves. In verse 50, he says, you're not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. perish. In other words, the primary motivation there is appealing to your own advantage. In other words, if the nation perishes, then your position perishes. Does that make sense? If the nation falls to pieces and Rome comes in, your title, your role, your respect and esteem in the community, your income will perish. It'll be gone. It is to your advantage, religious leaders, that this man should die. And when they heard that, there were nods around the room. And they were all in full agreement that the next step was to kill Jesus, but they didn't know that's exactly what Jesus wanted to. But different motivations, different reasons. It's interesting, the corruption runs so deep, the corruption runs so deep that they are now going to start creating their own alternative facts. Why? Because they still have a problem. That problem is Lazarus. He's still walking. Chipper, right? He's happy. He just got out of the grave. But he's a problem because if he's living, people will still believe in Jesus. And so they actually decide not only do we need to kill Jesus, we need to kill Lazarus too. And we see that in verse 9 through 11. Then the earth, yeah, 9 through 11. Then a large crowd of the Jews learned he was there. They came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, the one he had raised from the dead. <coughs> but the chief priests had decided to kill Lazarus also because he was the reason many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. And you get this picture also of jealousy. Lazarus is the reason that they were deserting their leaders and following Jesus 
and they didn't like it. We must kill Lazarus. We're going to create our own set of facts so that at the end of the day, we'll have this story to tell that says, you know, Jesus was just a troublemaker, and he didn't really do anything of any importance, and really what we need to do is maintain the status quo and move forward and wait for our long-awaited Messiah, some distant future, who would be more like us. Jesus disrupts salvation. He does it differently. He's, he, in, a, in a weird twist, it's the same plan, but different motives. Jesus says he's coming to die for the nations, not just for the nation of Israel, but for the scattered children across the world. And a lot of commentators believe it's referring to also the Gentiles. That, that Jesus had in mind not just the ethnic Jews, but, but all people of the world. And earlier we saw that Jesus says, I have sheep of another fold that I, I must bring in as well. And so Jesus' plan is global. And Jesus' plan is not primarily, uh, primarily political, but spiritual. Jesus' salvation is primarily spiritual because the problem is not politics or policies or programs the problem is the people behind those politics programs and policies do you get what i'm saying like we don't have corruption because we can't figure out how to make a good policy it's that our the biases we bring to the table the the selfishness we bring to the table necessarily corrupts all those things and so Jesus is saying look you're not going to make a policy that's going to fix everything you're not going to create a party that's going to fix everything ironically you know you want to know what happens not not even 40 years later the very thing they feared happened anyway Someone created a revolt, the Romans didn't like it, and they came in and they sacked Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple, and Israel was no more like it was. They couldn't prevent the inevitable from happening. They tried. And Jesus said, you don't, we don't need political salvation, we need spiritual salvation. And that's why Jesus had to die. He's coming to die for our sins, our selfishness, our self-glorification, our lack of trust in him, our full trust in our own selves, our blindness to see that we're not getting anywhere. Jesus died for all of that. That was his mission. That was his, his journey. And that's what he did to die for us. That's what true salvation is. And that's the way in which Jesus disrupts salvation by showing us it's not man-made. It's God-ordained. Jesus not only disrupts salvation, he disrupts money. Jesus disrupts money. And you might think, okay, you're talking about death. You're talking about salvation. And now you're talking about money. Like, like two of them seem like big concepts, and one of them seems kind of trite in comparison. And it's... Number one, I'm talking about because it's in the text, just so you know. We preach through the Bible. And so if it's in the text, we're going to preach it. But when you think about it, money is actually important. Not money in itself, but what you do with money reveals a lot about what you trust in for life 
and salvation. That's why it's important, and that's why it's here. Jesus disrupts money. Let me read verses uh, 1 through 8 of chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, the one Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha was serving them, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped his feet with her hair. So the whole house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, Why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. Jesus answered, leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Um, The status quo is this. What I really need is money and not God. What I really need is money and not God. And this is a status quo that is evidenced in practice more than in word. Does that make sense? What I mean is we can say a lot about what we value, but in practice, all you need to look at is how we spend our money. What we really need is money and not God. That's the status quo. Now, <coughs> first of all, I just want to point out, it's kind of cool. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and uh, if you do that, you get a dinner, right? <laughs> Let's throw a dinner for him. I, I think that's just funny to me. <laughs> they throw a dinner for Jesus. Like, it's the least you can do if you raise someone from the dead. Just give him a dinner. And I'm sure it was a fabulous dinner. And it's a banquet, actually. It's, it's not just... Uh, not just your, you know, pop your frozen dinner in the microwave, let's hurry up and fix something for them. It's a, it's a nice spread. And, and commentators say because uh, they're reclining at table the way that they did it, it was probably like a pretty festive thing, which makes sense. Now, in the midst of what is a normal banquet, something um, abnormal happens. And Mary, who is uh, the sister of Lazarus, also the sister uh, of Martha, uh, takes a bottle of perfume. Uh, the scripture says it's expensive nard, and it's worth 300 denarii, which is about a year's salary worth. Now, let me just throw out a, a round number. Let's throw out something like in this area, maybe $50,000. I'm sure the average salary is a little bit more, but let's just throw that number out, 50000 So imagine you have a $50,000 bottle of perfume, about a pound's worth. And what she does, she takes it and she empties it all out on Jesus' feet. Furthermore, she wipes it with her hair. So she unbinds her hair, which was a big faux pas in their culture. You don't do that in their culture as a woman. Unbinds her hair, bends out, and 
wipes it with her feet, and the whole house was filled with the aroma of this perfume. Now, I just want you to pause. That's pretty incredible, is it not? Imagine imagine if you had something worth $50,000. You could go sell it on the market. So it's not a question of, oh, I can't get rid of it or whatever. I'm just going to use it. It's something that you could go get money. You could go $50,000 cash in your pocket. I I, I looked at this. I said, what would I do? Number one, I'm not rubbing Jesus' feet with my hair. I, I don't have enough hair. But apart from that, I think I'm good with giving a couple ounces, to be honest, right? I mean, a couple ounces, a little goes a long way, you know, and I'm, I'm probably going to take it to the bank and have a little bit of extra money. I'm not saying that's what you should do. I'm just telling you honestly, that's probably what I would have done. What would you have done? And, and so you get this picture of Mary. What does that say about who she values with her actions? What does that tell you? And and what I see with her is so much freedom that she doesn't give it a second thought. This 50,000, she was saving it for this moment. She's not worried about God's provision. She's not worried about what she's missing out on. She's saying, I have what I want right here, and Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. Her her spending habits demonstrate who she values. Like, she could say whatever she wants, but you look at what she does, and it's 100% clear who she values. She treasures Jesus, and she believes that it's worth it. Now, how do they respond in the midst of that? How do we respond? It's it's interesting. We get a couple of responses here, and I think we would probably find ourselves somewhere in those responses. The first response is from Judas. Good old Judas Iscariot. Verse 5, Judas says this, Why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, just consider that response for a a bit. It sounds kind of reasonable, doesn't it? I mean, he's saying, you know what? You could have done a lot of good with those resources. Like, there's poor people that have need of food and clothing and all of that 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 money could have bought. Why not sell it? Why why spend it all on this? It's a one-time use. The house smells good. But that money could have been used to help hundreds, maybe thousands of people. It's an explanation and reasoning that on the surface makes a lot of sense if, if you think about it. I don't know that if I were there in that room and I heard Judas say that, I think I would have been like, hmm, yeah, why not? But that's not the only response we get. And that's not all there is that's going on in Judas's head. He's he's saying one thing, 
but he's believing quite another thing. And we see that in the next verse. (coughs) Verse 6, he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put into it. Judas' real motive for saying what he said, for responding the way he did, is because he wanted his own cut. In other words, he's operating off this status quo. What I really need is money, not God. But he's using an excuse. He's using something that sounds good, something that sounds wise even, to justify what he really treasures, to justify what he really values. And it's interesting, as you, you know Lazarus, what he does, he, he basically turns Jesus in for cash. That's where his heart is. That's where, that's his God. And it, it, didn't, it didn't just happen, it's being demonstrated throughout his life. And this is a, a key example of it. Judas cared nothing about the poor at least not in relation to what he cared about most, which is money. And so here we have a contrast between Mary on the one hand and Judas on the other. And let me ask you, who do you think is more free? Mary. Mary is way more free than Judas. Judas is bound. He's tied. He's blinded. He can't even see that what Mary has is the best part. This is the same Mary, by the way, in the other story where Martha and Mary are are preparing for a party. Actually, Martha's preparing, and Martha gets upset because Mary's just sitting at at Jesus' feet, you know, listening to him teach, and Martha's, you know, scattered, doing dishes and putting stuff up, and Martha's like, Jesus, why don't you tell Mary to come help with the preparation? I'm sitting here, and, and, you know, Martha thinks she's righteous, you know, and Mary's just lazy, and Jesus says, leave her alone. She has chosen the best part. She's chosen the good portion, so Mary's consistent. She's like, I just want Jesus, and Lazarus just wants money, and he's enslaved to it. Judas. Did I say Jesus? Lazarus. Sorry. Um, Judas just wanted money. Lazarus was a good guy. All right. What is Jesus, how does Jesus respond? Verse 7 and 8. Jesus answered, leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. (coughs) Jesus does not rebuke Mary. Jesus says that's a good thing she's done. And, And what Jesus is doing now, he's starting to clue us into what where he's going. He's transitioning. He's kind of done the big signs that he's done, and now he's preparing to die. 
And, and Mary, I don't know if she knew that was the case, but she does this. And Jesus says what she's doing is actually preparing for my burial. And the poor you'll always have with you, but you, you won't always have me. And, and Jesus is not saying, uh, I don't care about the poor. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that, you know what, it's okay to care about me more than you care about the poor. Why? Because Jesus, Jesus is God. Jesus is the biggest reality in life, and he's the one who actually cares for the poor. And it begs the question, like, can we ever worship God too extravagantly? Can we ever devote too much of ourselves to God? And, and the story, the, the pictures that we get is, is no. To, to devote ourselves to God is freedom because we don't trust in the things that, that we think gives us salvation, whether it's money or whether it's politics or whether it's diet or exercise or whatever we think gives us life. We can let go of those things and, and place ourselves at the feet of Jesus and believe that he's the one who gives me all I need. There's freedom in that. There's freedom in letting go, even of our finances. And, and I want to encourage us to ask, you know, sometimes I think we don't talk about money enough, but it's, it's just one of those things that tells you the truth, right? You can lie to yourself. It's easy to, like Judas was just lying to himself and others. It was like, how often do we say, oh, I, I can't give right now because I'm trying to work off this debt. I can't give right now because, uh, like all the financial money gurus say, that you have to have six months of savings. So when I get to that six months, and then we get to that six months, well, we are going to have a kid. And so when we get the extra savings for the kid, well, we're going to put a down payment on the house. So when we get the down payment on the house, then I'll give. And we use all these excuses to rob God of our devotion. Not just our time, not just our talents, but also our treasure, our finances, is an indication of where we put our trust and hope in. What do your finances say about who or what you trust? Ask yourself that. And, and, and I come up here saying that I'm not perfect in this. There are times in my life, if you had asked me at 17 years old and looked at my finances, you would have thought that McDonald's was a great savior. You would have thought that video games were my savior. And if I had had enough money, sports cars would have been my savior. But when we fall short, when we realize we fall short, that's where Jesus meets us. Jesus doesn't expect us to get it all together before we can approach him. Jesus meets us in our shortfall where we can say, you know, God, I, I don't, I'm not as devoted as, I look at this picture and I go, wow, there's so much freedom in what Mary has done, but Lord, I'm not there yet. But I believe you love me where I'm at. And I believe that's precisely why you came to die is for my shortfall. You make up for my shortfall abundantly. That's the grace that we have in Jesus. That's the good news that we have in Jesus is that he makes up for our shortfall. And by his grace, 
He will move us to a place of increased devotion where we can see, uh, we can see just how valuable Jesus is. And we move day by day, week by week, month by month into greater freedom as we trust in him, as we understand that he is who he says he is, that he's done what he said he does, and he will do what he says he will do. Jesus disrupts money, and in that he disrupts and undoes or undoes all that we trust in apart from him to reveal that it crumbles at the end of the day, but he does not. He is solid as a rock, and we can place our whole lives upon him and not worry a bit. Let me, let me back that one up again. Some people struggle with worry, and I know that's hard, and I don't want to undercut that or undermine that. But together, as a community, following Jesus, we can pray, we can trust, we can grow, even in the midst of our struggles and trying to understand that. He's there, and he will bring a day where we will all rise, and all that hinders us will crumble, and we will be his forever. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you, Lord, for sending your son, Jesus, to die for us, to give us life, to show us true salvation, Lord, that we wouldn't trust in our man-made mechanisms of salvation, Lord, that we wouldn't be lost in the hopelessness of death. Father, that we would, Lord, we would just believe and understand, Lord, that you've demoed your power. You've shown us your goodness. You've shown us that you really are the resurrection and the life. That money can't save us. Politics can't save us. Lord, but you save us. Help us to walk in the confidence, Lord, that that gives us. Even in the midst of tragedy. Lord, even in the midst of suffering and loss. It just occurred to me, Lord, that though you you raised Lazarus from the dead, Um, he eventually died again. And there was another funeral. And he didn't come back immediately. But Lord, that we believe in you, we will see Lazarus again. We will see our loved ones again in you. We will see Randy Sheets again. Help us to hold on to that hope. Lord, give us the freedom that we have in you to believe that you're enough. That you're enough. In our joys and in our sorrows. We thank you, Father, for your goodness. We thank you for sending your Son. We thank you for this word.
In Jesus' name, amen.